Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, say what you want about Morbius. This is Morbius. Welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person (laughs) with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Thoughts and feelings and some water that went down the wrong tube, maybe. (laughs) And a hacking cough. (laughs) Saw Ian on camera, (laughs) trying not to cough into the mic. But in movies like Morbius, which we'll be talking about today. Why do you think I was choking? Well, you like this movie more than I do. Spoiler alert. Before we get into that, dare I ask, Ian, how are you doing this week? Well, got a health update. I just saw my doctor for my first annual checkup in three years. I asked him, can I get my blood mixed with a vampire bat? And he said, no, insurance company won't approve it. Other than that, I got a clean bill of health. Did you ask him what the answer would be if you guys were in international waters? I didn't think of that. I wonder if he'd be willing to get on a boat with a bunch of trigger happy thugs. Mercenary. (laughs) Just super aggro mercenaries. Mariners. For no reason. (laughs) They're mercenaries that are also sailors. We'll get to that later. Yeah, it's been a rough week, rough month in America and much of the world. I was going to say something like, but you know, it's all right. But no, I can't even say that. Hard to say that it's all right. But we got movies to talk about. So did you watch anything this week that you wanted to talk about? I did. I watched a little movie about a handsome man with supernatural powers who starts to transform into something darker and he fears that he won't be able to become fully human again. I love when you do this, by the way. (laughs) I watched Howl's Moving (laughs) Castle, 2004. Oh, interesting. So yeah, yeah. that's a throwback. You talk about rough weeks. I needed an escape and I knew that Miyazaki would take me away somewhere and he did. It's pretty reliable to throw on a Miyazaki movie and just be spirited away, so to speak, to a different place oh and kind of forget your, <laughs> forget your troubles for a minute. Yeah. I hadn't seen Howl's Moving Castle before. It's really cool. It's not my favorite one, but it's totally cool. Got a really cool voice cast as a lot of these movies did when they got English dubs. It's got Emily Mortimer, Christian Bale, Billy Crystal's in it, Lauren Bacall, people you didn't think were alive in 2004. But yeah, yeah. it's really nice. You just just can't go wrong. I'm a very recent convert to Miyazaki, like I never dabbled before. And then when I got into it, I'm like, why didn't anyone tell me? He's so awesome. It's great because all the stuff's on HBO Max. Uh-huh. That's when I started going through the movies and watching them. I haven't seen them all yet. I have not seen Howl's Moving Castle yet. But yeah, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, I'm yeah. a big fan. Ponyo. I watched Ponyo recently, actually, on the advice of Sean Fennessy. I was about to do that too. Yeah, really good. Been watching it with my kids. My daughter especially likes oh, them. Nice. I think the animation style is quite eye-catching. So it's really good for kids that can have trouble paying attention to a 90-minute movie when there's dull stretches, but the movies are so colorful and so interesting to look at. I think it really holds their attention. That's great that you're getting them into it early. My favorite is still My Neighbor Totoro. If you haven't seen that, I definitely recommend that. It's got such a great spirit about children not being afraid of spooky things that because I'm still inside, I'm a child who's afraid of anything spooky. And so like I'm fully bolstered by watching that movie. Don't sell yourself short. You watched Men for no reason. You didn't bring it to show and tell. It wasn't on the schedule yet. You were just like, I'm going to sit down and watch this Alex Garland horrific mindfuck of a movie. I didn't know it was a horror (laughs) mindfuck, and it really is. It's really brutal. I watched it because I got tricked. I was like, oh, this is going to be a cool, colorful sci-fi movie, and it's not that. I'm very excited to watch it, but we're going to have to cover it because it bombed hard. Okay. Uh, Alex Garland cannot catch a break at the box office, but yeah, I'll throw it on the schedule. Maybe for Blastober. It seems fitting for that, right? Yeah, totally. Watch out, folks. Watch out for men in the movie theater and in real life. 
just in general. Yeah, that's kind of what it's about. I haven't done a lot of movie watching this week except for kids' movies. So I wanted to bring something else I know we're both pretty passionate about. FX just launched a new show called The Bear. Did they? Which I fucking head over heels for. So good. Uh, my favorite new show I've seen in quite a while. And I've been watching The Old Man and I was like, this is the best new show I've seen in a while. Then mm-hmm. The Bear came out. I was like, fuck, I can't keep giving out this title <laughs> willy nilly. It's going to mean nothing. Probably since Mayor of Easttown, this is the most taken I've been with a new series. Same here. It's just remarkable. My two loves in life are movies and TV and food. When I have a spare dollar or so, I like to head to a fine dining restaurant. I hosted a Top Chef podcast for a year, so I'm very into the world of celebrity chefs. This kind of tackles that in a really interesting way. I've heard it described as uncut gems in the kitchen, which is accurate (laughs) because it's so tense and it makes you anxious. The camera angles are right up in the character's faces, so you feel like you're in their personal space, just like if you were in this tight kitchen. But I know you watched it too, so don't let me bogart the... I loved it just as much as you do. I agree with everything you said. You told me about this show, and then I just forgot that because not a lot of things stick in my little soggy brain. And I saw the show pop up on Hulu, The Bear. I'm like, that's looks interesting. Why do I feel compelled to watch this? And I turned it on and I said, holy shit, John is going to love this. I have to tell him about it. And you're like, yeah, dude, I told you about it a week ago. Oh, but I think my spidey sense was tingling because I somehow- You were drawn to it. I was just drawn to it. I'm like the bear. I don't know what the fuck that is, but I got to see it. And it's so good. And like you said, in real life, I hate yelling. I hate conflict. This whole show is people yelling and being in extremely tense, heated conflict with each other constantly. It should be obnoxious. It should be unbearable. It's a delight to watch these people fucking and yell at each other and lose their minds. I just fell in love with it. It's really short. It's billed as a comedy, so it's like a 30-minute. It's a half hour. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, There are funny moments, but the humor arises out of extreme stress and tragedy. Yeah, and maybe it creeps in about the third episode. You're like, no, this is a drama for sure. It's got humorous moments, but it's also a compelling story about families and friendships, and it's all around. Such a good show. I think episode seven is getting a lot of the press because it's a very ambitious episode of television, but there's a long monologue in the final episode episode eight that I don't want to spoil with any more details, but truly remarkable. Some of the best writing and acting I've seen anywhere in a long time. I liked it so much that I finished it and I said to my wife, Jamie, I'm cashing in my making you watch a show with me. We have very different tastes in pop culture. Uh I don't often take the things I really enjoy and force them on her because I have a better sense of what she'll enjoy now. But this one, I was like, I think she'll get something out of it too. So did it work? Throwing it down. We're only one episode in, but she's she's on board. Okay, good, good. Yeah. That's tense when you have something that's this dear to you that you really hope it translates. I know that feeling. She absolutely hated No Country for Old Men, my favorite movie ever. So (laughs) ever since then, I've been a little sore. Yeah. (laughs) But when I told her it was eight half hour episodes, she was like, all right. That's very digestible. Yeah. Even if you can't take the yelling, it's over fast. But it's one of those shows where the ensemble goes deep and every show you pick a new person, you go, oh no, wait, that's my favorite character. Oh no, that's my favorite character. Because they all take these turns and they're all great. Yeah. And Marcus, the baker, I could not place where I knew him from. He was on the show Loiter Squad, which was Tyler the Creator's prank show. Really? In the early 2010s, it was a spiritual successor to Jackass. I think even Jeff Tremaine, who created Jackass with Johnny Knoxville, was an executive producer on it. I was like, I know that guy from somewhere. And it was Lionel Boyce, who plays Marcus. Like they're pulling people from all these diverse backgrounds and just throwing them in there and they're all crushing it. Matty Matheson, one of my favorite celebrity chefs, is just acting all of a sudden. He was a culinary consultant on the show. And I guess they thought, oh, this guy seems charismatic. Let's throw him in front of the camera. He does great. And he's the only character that doesn't cook on the show. Yeah. The one- chef. He's trying to get a job there the whole time. Yeah. They won't hire him. But if you're ever in Toronto, go to Maker's Pizza if it's still there. It's quite good. Gotta try that. All right. This is not the podcast about the bear. This is a podcast about Morbius. We gotta talk about Morbius. Now, it's tough for me to sit here and go, Ian, what'd you know about Morbius? Were you familiar with it? Because if you have the internet, <laughs> you're familiar with Morbius in 2022. This is a very recent movie. It might still be 
on a handful of theater screens. Could if you be. Look. But what's your experience with Morbius? How much did you know about it going into this? I know you watched it on your own a few weeks back. You brought it for show and tell, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I tried to dig back because it exploded on the internet at the point it came out. But I'm like, did I know about this before? And I did. I remember hearing that it was in production at least a couple months ahead and going, oh, that might be cool. I remember the character from my comic book reading days in my youth. And I enjoyed other Spider-Man related things like the first Venom. And my reason- Did you not like the second Venom or did you just not see it? I tried to watch it and I did not like it. I turned it off. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not very good at all. Okay. So I'm not crazy. <laughs> and then I had some recent experience with Jared Leto. If we're going to say his name, Leto, that's maybe what I'm going to do. Let's go for it. I stumbled on to last year's The Little Things, watched that on a whim and saw him being an absolute gonzo nutball in that movie, but found it slightly charming just because, oh, look what he's doing. And then seeing what he did more recently in House of Gucci, like the guy makes an impression. So I wasn't totally against him going into this. And then I guess I was surprised when it became a laughingstock. I thought there is a, a Marvel fan base that I would think is willing to over... If they, they went out and watched a lot of that Venom sequel. So I'm like, why aren't those same people just head over heels for this movie, which might've been a junk food movie, but it wasn't overly crazy outside of the context of maybe Leto's worst rumors of shenanigans as the Joker. I think you can remove the line as the Joker because Leto's got all types of shenanigans going okay. on outside of just film sets. He's been accused of a lot of stuff like running a cult in a mountain town somewhere. Like he had some Instagram posts where he came down, he was wearing like a white robe and he was like, I didn't even know COVID was going on because I've just been up in the mountains with all my acolytes. It was very strange. There's a mountain of pretty horrible accusations against him in regards to propositioning underage fans. Mm. Things like, he seems like a pretty unsavory character. I don't know how much of this you want to keep in. No, but, <laughs> but no, but it's interesting to realize that I wasn't as well informed as maybe the mass of internet trolls who went after this movie. I mean, this movie, I remember seeing this trailer probably like two years ago. I feel like this movie, this trailer has been playing in front of movies forever. And okay. the release date shenanigans with this movie were just never ending. It's been pushed back half a dozen times at this point. I think you wonder why will Marvel fans show up for some movies and not others? One, this isn't an MCU movie as much as it tries to be, as much as it uses every inch of leverage it has to wedge itself into the MCU. It's not an MCU movie. It's not made like one. It doesn't feel like one. Uh -huh. And that has some positive applications throughout the movie, which we can get into. But I feel like MCU fans are MCU fans and not necessarily necessarily just comic book movie fans. Okay. Second, Venom is a very popular character, especially with people the like 25 to 40 year old range because he was an edgelord icon in the 90s. Okay. And became a really big deal. Like for me, I was a young kid reading comics in the 90s and Venom was one of my favorites because, you know, he's cool. He's got his black suit. He's kind of a bad guy, kind of a good guy. Whereas Morbius, even when he would pop up in comics when I was a kid, he always seemed C tier. Yeah. And overly serious. Never really interested in me. Not a cheeky, anti-hero like Venom, but a very self-serious brooding one. Yeah. And also I think there's a certain amount of Jared Leto fatigue running rampant. Also the reviews for this movie were absolutely brutal. It was like kind of a perfect storm of a movie crashing and burning. And then you can't tell the story of Morbius without telling the story of the re-release, which we'll have to get into. But yeah. you have to wonder how much did Sony not have a young person on their payroll to tell them like, no guys, no, you're misunderstanding what's happening here. I know you theorized at the end of last episode that maybe there's more at play here. And maybe Maybe there was, but because it's so new, it's hard to find any like real behind the scenes info about what went into the decision to re-release Morbius. Right. Uh, so we have to run with the idea that it was just the increased interest from internet memes that made them think they, they had a sleeper hit on their hands and maybe they could make a little money and uh, yeah. get into it. It did not come to pass. That sort of thinking can fold back in on itself because we're in this post-irony world that like maybe the execs who made what looks like a terrible decision could have been proven brilliant in another sense where everyone wanted to go see the movie to laugh at it or something, but they'd 
just didn't, didn't to, go down that way. Didn't work out that way. I didn't even mention it in the monologue that I'm about to start, but there was also a Twitch account that was just streaming Morbius for a few days before it got shut down. Oh, wild. So, I think a lot of people that were interested in the movie, ironically, probably watched it for free on Twitch. Right. And then were less motivated because if they're just watching it for fodder for memes, they don't really care if it's on the big screen or not. Yeah. But do you want me to talk about the behind the scenes drama that went on with the making of this movie? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. Before the memes, Morbius was mostly a C-tier Marvel character, best known as an antagonist, and sometimes reluctant ally for Spider-Man. Various studios and filmmakers had tried to bring the living vampire to the big screen, dating as far back as 1998, with a proposed cameo in Blade that would potentially be expanded into a larger role in the sequel. This idea was scrapped. Who knew you could get cut from Blade? Next up was Artisan Entertainment, the same studio that produced previous episode The Punisher, after acquiring the rights to 15 Marvel characters in May 2000. This attempt would also fail to get out of the planning stages. After Sony began fleshing out their own Spider-Man cinematic universe with the announcement of a Venom solo film, Morbius was at the top of their list for other characters to spin off, along with future films Craven the Hunter, Madam Web, and El Muerto. Hell yeah, it's Craven time. I'm Craven all over those guys. By November 2017, screenwriters Matt Sazama and Bert Sharpless, writers of Dracula Untold, The Last Witch Hunter, and Gods of Egypt, so you know they're really good at this, had turned in a script. Director Daniel Espinosa fresh off his 2017 sci-fi horror movie Life, which interestingly enough was rumored to be a stealthy Venom prequel before its release, was confirmed as the director in June 2018. That same month, Jared Leto was announced as the star, taking a break from his day job of cosplaying as Father John Misty. With a budget reportedly in the $85 million range, the cast was rounded out with Matt Smith, Jared Harris, Tyrese Gibson, and Adria Jorna. Filming began in February 2019 in London and went smoothly with none of the stars being weird method actors and making production a living hell for the cast and crew. Just kidding. I hope Leto didn't insist on walking with his crutches even when cameras weren't rolling. Leto insisted on walking with his crutches even when cameras weren't rolling, leading to huge delays because walking to the bathroom and back would take him over 45 minutes. This was alleviated by having him use a wheelchair to get around set between takes because sure, why not? Filming wrapped in June of 2019, giving them plenty of time to take care of post-production ahead of the announced release date of July 28th, 2020. Reshoots began in Los Angeles in February of 2020, but was halted a month later due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The first release date delayed would happen in March of 2020 as they delayed the film to March 29th, 2021. And then in January of 2021, the film was delayed to October 2021. And then once again to January 2022. The poster budget for this movie must have been insane. The film would have a one-week delay announced in April 2021 with the new release date of January 28th, 2022. However, at the beginning of January 2022, the studio announced it was delaying the film to April 1st, 2022, a perfect release date for this movie as they plan to keep Spider-Man No Way Home in theaters for longer. When it was finally released, critics absolutely savaged it as it currently sits at 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. It didn't have a terrible debut, bringing in $39 million its opening weekend and taking first place, but it would have the second largest second week drop off for a comic book movie after that, plummeting 74% to only $10.2 million as Sonic the Hedgehog 2 premiered. For context, the only superhero movie with a worse second week drop off was the Shaquille O'Neal movie Steel. You could say audience reaction was icy hot. The movie would take on a bizarre second life though as sarcastic internet memes extolling it as the greatest work of film ever ran rampant over Twitter and other social media. The most famous example being the tweet from at rank 10 YGO, which read, and I quote, the best part of Morbius was when he said it's Morbin time and morbed all over those guys, end quote. And end movie. This continued for months until Sony eventually announced 
they were re-releasing the movie, which by that point was only in 83 theaters nationwide for one weekend due to the renewed interest. They put the film in over a thousand theaters for the weekend of June 3rd, but that would also prove disastrous as the film would only make $300,000 or $289 per theater, perhaps becoming the most high-profile movie to bomb twice. Jeez, I said a lot of fucking dates in that monologue. Then it was delayed to April 2022. I hope our fans like calendars. The villain of this movie should have been the Calendar Man, a <laughs> famous Batman villain. Is that a real thing? Oh, yeah, he's a real villain. They actually, there was like a little bit of a reclamation project with him a few years ago. They made a story where he was dark and gritty and actually worked as a character. So it just goes to show if you approach any character <laughs> with enough reverence, you can make it decent, I guess. Well, he delayed the shit out of this film. And we always speculate to what extent does production woes influence the public's view of the film? It depends on, obviously, how much they hear about that. Obviously, the critics hear more of that, and so they might just go in more skeptically. Films that just have a lot of trouble getting out of the gate. They go, oh, what's wrong with this clunker? And then nobody liked this thing, I guess, except me. Did you like it, or did you like it more than you thought you would? Because that's an important distinction. I started by liking it more than I thought I would, but in the end, I liked it fine. I actually don't dislike this movie, unless I'm a subconscious contrarian and I just refuse to bow to the masses. You don't have a contrarian spirit in my opinion. I do not think you would like this just to be different, but I do not think this is a good movie. I don't think it's boring. I think it's so incompetent you can laugh at it sometimes, and other times it's not incompetent enough to be funny, but this is not my least favorite movie we've ever covered. Mm -hmm. I probably like this movie more than I liked Independence Day Resurgence, to be perfectly honest. Okay, yeah. There are some good things about it, but I don't know. It feels like nobody involved with it has ever made a movie before and is just kind of winging it based on what they assume is supposed to happen. (laughs) That's an interesting take. It's it's made in a very strange way. <laughs> I see a lot of its flaws, and you'll certainly point some out. We can go through them. But to me, the flaws it had were very ordinary flaws that when you make a Hollywood action comic book movie, the landscape of that has changed since the Marvel movies especially have been under such fine grain control. But like the general template of big Hollywood action movie, they do a bunch of dumb things in the story, plot points that don't quite make sense that you're like, they just wedged this or that thing in there because they needed this to happen where they needed to start a fight over here. And a bunch of those kind of dumb things happen and a bunch of scenes happen that you go, that didn't work for me. But all of those were kind of routine for me. And none of them were like, oh, this is sync in the movie. I'm like, if I'm here to watch an action movie, I'm going to do that. And then when the action happened, I was quite satisfied with it. I agree to some extent and disagree to another. I think this movie does feel like a big superhero, non-MCU comic book movie, Uh but it feels like one from 20 years ago. This very much struck me as a throwback in a lot of ways. And it's interesting that that the character was first planned to make a big screen debut in Blade because it feels like a movie from that era in a lot of ways. I just think viewers and fans have stopped seeing comic book movies as their own genre that deserves extra slack because, oh, you got to make some concessions because it's a comic book movie. It's going to be dumb stuff. Some stuff's not going to make sense. I feel like we expect more of them now. And maybe this would have been considered a masterpiece of the comic book genre a while ago. But now we've seen what Matt Reeves has done with the Batman, what Nolan did with all the Batman movies. Sure. And the MCU movies have certainly like a homogenized feel to them that this movie doesn't have. And I appreciate that about it. But that doesn't mean it's competent. That's fair. I think we're not that far apart. And for me, it probably turns on a few things. I think we already have them in the notes. Scenes where a little thing, I bought it. I was willing to accept this one little thing here in this scene and one little thing over there. And that sort of turns your whole attitude towards the rest of the movie. And you're going to probably point out a few of those that you absolutely rejected where I was like, oh, that's okay. And we went down two different paths at that point. And then the movie was 
decent for me and stinky for you. A morb diverged in the yellow wood, <laughs> purple wood. I guess it's purple. This movie's very purple. Purple. I like the purple part of it. I like the intro credits for this movie a lot. Yeah. I found them really cool. It almost reminded me of like Last Night and So, <laughs> another Matt Smith movie. It's stylish. Somebody in the art direction had some ideas that were stylish and that pink and purple graphic lines and shapes were neat. Yeah. Do you want to get into the story? I feel like we're dancing around our specific feelings about the movie because we don't want to spoil any scenes. We're in an interesting spot with this movie. I wonder how many listeners have actually had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, I bet you know, a lot I'm of I'm always hesitant to do very new movies because it's like, unless you, is it's not on Disney Plus, is this movie streaming anywhere or do you have to get it on demand? I don't even know. We are demanding people and so we get our movies no matter yeah. what. But yeah, what are other people doing? Has anyone seen this? And frankly, <laughs> if nobody saw this, I wouldn't be surprised because most of our friends are on the internet and the internet is screaming at them. This is the worst herd ever. Do not see this under any circumstances. You can rent it on all the usual suspects or you can buy it, but it's not streaming for free anywhere as of now. Okay. We got to be super detailed in our synopsis so people really know what they're getting into. We're going to give you the whole thing. Spoiler alert, we're telling you every plot point and maybe this is all you'll ever need to see, but maybe after I give you my pitch, you'll want to rent this or you'll at least want to wait till it streams somewhere for free and give it a shot one day. All right, let's get into it. Here we go. Dr. Michael Morbius, played by Jared Leto, is a brilliant scientist with a rare and debilitating blood disease. As a child, he lived in a hospital where he became best friends forever with a fellow sufferer named Milo. As a grown-up, Morbius's life's work includes inventing a synthetic form of blood that has saved countless lives worldwide, and now he's collected a closet full of vampire bats from Costa Rica to enable his newest breakthrough, a cure for his own condition. Aided by his friend and colleague and possible love interest, Martine, played by Adria Arjona, Morbius performs an illegal gene-splicing test on himself on board an offshore cargo ship, whatever that is, but it goes a little wrong. He's cured of his illness. In fact, he has superhuman powers, but every few hours he has to drink blood. Synthetic blood works to satisfy his thirst for now, but he already knows that soon it won't be enough. And his old friend Milo, now played by Matt Smith, is on to his new secret. Don't you hate when you need to drink blood every few hours just to satiate it sucks. your body's lust for it? And you get that Gatorade ice blue. It works for a while. Then you're still thirsty four hours later. It's not the same. It doesn't have enough electrolytes in it. Yeah. And so, so this section of the movie is interesting. It doesn't start off very strong. I found this opening scene quite silly. All right. I found a lot of this opening section quite silly. <laughs> That's fair. But opening scene, I think we agree. Didn't really work. It almost sunk the movie for me. He lands in Costa Rica on, it is, I believe, Cerro de la Muerta, which means Happy Fun Time Mountain yes. in Spanish. Your Spanish is very good. Thank you. And he is with another group of mercenaries, it seems, right? Well, these guys don't seem like tour guys. <laughs> Just random action movie characters they scooped out yeah. of the bucket somewhere. Where does this doctor from New York just have these dudes with helicopters and heavy machinery and weaponry in Costa Rica on standby to be like, all right, we're going in. And then he antagonizes these bats for no reason. Like, how is that helping you get them home? Like, you want to scoop them into a thing and put them on the helicopter. But no, he slices his hands with the world's rustiest machete. I hope they had a fucking tetanus shot available on that helicopter. And then all the bats rush out of the cage because this movie is vampire bat character assassination. They make these things seem like the absolute worst creatures that have ever lived in the earth. If they smell a drop of blood, they will attack you until they pick your bones like piranhas. Yeah, they do a piranha kind of a spin on them because as they approach the cave, they show this carcass of, what is it, like a mountain goat or a yak or something that's been just eaten down to the bones. I think mountain goat was my take on it, and that makes the most sense considering they're on Happy Fun Time Mountain. Yeah, they're way up on um, the mountain, so you don't expect grazing animals to be up there. But yeah, these things are just deadly, and the crew is like, we gotta get out of here before the sun goes down. It's too 
dangerous will be killed. They're scared of Dracula. The bats attack them in the daytime anyway. (laughs) So this whole scene to me didn't make sense because, okay, we're meeting the brilliant Dr. Morbius and he's eccentric and he's weird and he's spooky. And you'd think that he's doing something bold here. He's taking a big risk. That's what we're learning about, his boldness and his fearlessness. But it's actually not risky because he's not hurt at all. He's not a vampire at this point. And yet the bats come out and they just flap around him. He's not eaten up like the mountain goat was. But yet the crew thinks they're going to be eaten up like the mountain goat. And why is he such a dick to them? He doesn't even give them time to get back on the helicopter. He cuts his hand open without even a word. Like, hey guys, three, two, one, I'm going to set off the big rush of bats. Maybe you want to make a jog for it. He makes them flee for their lives for no reason, just to be a dramatic dick, which is would be okay if that's who he was. But they spend the rest of the movie teaching us he's a man of incredible compassion towards everyone, this wonderful person, the only man who's compassionate and humane. He's a comically to- wonderful person. It's yeah. not like even realistic. To this huge extent, because he's the only man in the world that can handle the burden of becoming a literal vampire and resist it and have his humanity overcome that terrible curse. And yet in the first scene, they make him out to be a guy who would just turn straight into an evil vampire the moment he got bit. And why is he not being attacked by the bats? No explanation. He's not part bat yet. I couldn't wrap my head around that. I was like, is this a flash forward when he already has the powers? But no, because that's how he gets the bats back to New York. So I guess if I try to get into the screenwriter's head, there's some idea later on that he has his own unique affinity between the bats and him. And that distinguishes him from Milo and Milo becomes a vampire later. Um, you are that, solving problems the screenwriters never thought to solve. Because <laughs> I had that had question in the notes. He's always had a relationship with bats. <laughs> yeah, he's always had something. He says he's kind of a bat guy. From a young age, Michael Morbius was very interested in bats. Sorry, I did, that was a succession reference. It was kind of subtle, though. One of the things that shows that he's a very compassionate and lovable guy is that he makes origami constantly and gives it to people and children and his friends. And are they all bats? Is that his thing? I couldn't tell what some of them No, I don't think they were all bats. Let me ask you a question. If you had a friend that you saw every day and every day he gave you a new piece of origami, would you find it very adorable (laughs) and fun after a few years? Or would you be like, another fucking piece of paper I got to put on my desk because if he sees I threw it out, he's going to be all butthurt? (laughs) It would be awkward. What am I supposed to do with all these, Michael? Wallpaper your fucking house with them? Enough is enough with the origami. All right. So then we fast forward to rural Greece, I guess. I don't where are they? Our flashback. They say 25 years before. So that puts us in the 90s, uh-huh. right? This movie starts slightly earlier than present day, or I guess present day. It's the origin of him getting the bats. Yeah. Then it flashes back. Then it goes to another flash forward, which includes another flashback. Is how the movie begins. It's very, that's why I'm saying, I don't know if anyone in this movie ever made a movie before. It's very bizarrely edited, but the child scenes are okay, I guess. The particulars of this blood disorder vex me. I think the comic book has always also kept it pretty vague, so they might've been trying to be faithful to that. They just say the only way for these kids to survive this disease is to get an oil change, as they call it, three times a day, which I guess is changing out their blood or at least doing some kind of transfusion three times a day. So yeah, why are they on a rustic, old island in Greece. Get to a big city with- There's a no big... way they have enough donors to supply these kids with the blood they need. Or like a university research hospital somewhere with a lot of resources. Where are they getting all this blood for three times a day per kid for their whole lives or they just die? Honestly, I thought there was going to be something shady with the Jared Harris character because of that. I was like, this whole operation seems suspect. Like he's running a black market for child blood? Yeah, something like maybe there's nothing wrong with these kids, but they're just weak all the time because he keeps stealing their blood Ooh, and selling that'd be, it. Like, that'd be a fun twist. Dr. Jared Harris, who uh, I don't, some of the actors they got in this movie, I'm like, man, you're better than this. Playing <laughs> Dr. Emil Nicholas. Funny yeah. So then he meets this kid, Lucian, that he calls Milo because he calls all his bedmates Milo because they, they come and go so quickly. They're friends for about two and a half days where they decide that they're going to be best buds for the rest of their life because Michael gets shipped away because 
his technical aptitude at putting together a, like a blood dialysis machine. Oh, that's right. He fixes Milo's machine. And then Jared Harris is like, dude, you're so smart. We got to get you out of here. We got to get you out of rural Greece. Yeah. She says there's a school in New York for gifted kids that could get you in there. A little X-Men reference they dropped on us. I know, but then he didn't show up at Professor Xavier's school, did he? (laughs) No, he didn't. That's no part of his origin in any story I'm familiar with, that he goes to Xavier's school. That was a red herring. I was ready for it to turn into an X-Men movie. They don't have the fucking rights to the (laughs) X-Men. Sony's never had the rights to the X-Men. That was a Fox thing, and now it's an MCU. Yeah, that was just like a rogue Um, reference. They're just fucking playing with the lawyers right there. Baiting them. (laughs) See how close we can walk up to the line before we get yelled at. But no, they leave, but they keep in touch, and he leaves Milo a letter. The letter flies out his window. Things happen. scripts. And then some bullies pick it up and are mocking him pretty brutally. I felt quite bad for Milo in that scene. And then he loses his shit and beats the shit out of one of them. And I was like, okay, I know what they're trying to do. I see the wheel spinning already. They're trying to plant the seed that this guy's a little too vengeful, maybe unscrupulous. But it's like, also that kid kind of deserved it. It's a good contrast with Michael, who is an absolute saint. Although, you know, he, he has this wicked sense of humor. Don't play with him. He's fluent in sarcasm. But Milo is actually <laughs> really deep down a terrible person. And he can't deal with his condition. It ruins him as a person. And all he wants to do is get back at the world. You're giving this script a lot of credit for <laughs> dropping those hints early on. Yeah, I had uh, to. Like, I had to see, get that. He got bullied and he got mad at the kid, and then 80 minutes later, he's. A mass murderer, He's a one monster. of the worst people in the history of the world. But that's probably my main issue with this movie, yeah. which we're getting ahead of ourselves because none of that's really happened yet. Also, we keep saying that Michael is such like an exalted figure. He's without flaw. But then a lot of the things he does that are meant to be noble come off as just like being a dick. Like he gives back his Nobel Prize because he specifically didn't cure his own disease, which I think nine people in the world have. But he saved the lives of like millions of people. He's like, no, I don't want it. Because I'm still sick. Is that why? I didn't even get what happened. The Nobel Prize scene is cut short and they try to drop a clue as to what happened in the next scene where he's chatting with the little girl, his patient. But yeah, it didn't make sense. It became clear that he somehow turned down the prize even as he was receiving it. They show him up to the point. He waited until he was on stage. Be like, never mind. He made his longtime (laughs) friend and mentor and the guy who kept him alive all these years, Dr. Jared Harris, MD, as I believe his character is called, introduces him on stage in Sweden or wherever the freaking Nobel is. And now here he is. And then he's faking like he's going to get up. And I guess at that point he went yoink and sat back down and said, no, I'm not accepting. Meanwhile, the stage is filled with previous Nobel winners who put on their ridiculous weird tuxes and sashes for this occasion. He could have done a Bob Dylan and turned down the prize with a press release. I think the reasoning, which you have to do your own reading between the lines to figure it is because while making the artificial blood, which he hoped would cure him and Milo, it did not work, but they found lots of other uses for it and it ended up saving millions of lives. So his thing was, it's true use was to cure people of this disease that I have and it didn't work. So I'm a failure. So fuck them kids. Which is I'm still not a pretty selfish else. point That's of weird. view about it. It's weird. All right. I guess the movie kind of jumps around quick. We get right into the boat scene at this point, right? More or less, he's experimenting on a mouse, finds out it works. Yeah, and then he's like, I can't. It's time to get a boat. Yeah, I can't do this experiment in the US. It's illegally too risky. We've got to go to what's the destination they head to? International waters. We get big (laughs) block letters across the bottom of the screen as we zoom in on a fucking freighter. And I think he's like 45 minutes off the coast of the Hamptons or something. I know that. I think, don't they say somewhere 13 (laughs) miles off a Long Island? I'm like, it doesn't sound so exotic anymore when you say that. I know. When he calls in the Mayday, he does say he's a few miles outside of Long Island. (laughs) You can see the fucking Montauk Lighthouse from where he is. 
but but yet yeah, it's dangerous. I don't know if you've ever had to rent a cargo freighter in international waters off a of Long Island. Where is he getting this money? But it's high risk. Oh, I think he he goes to Milo for the money because Milo oh, right, Milo's right. a high roller. That's another sign. I only picked up these things on the second watch, but Milo's a high roller. Milo turned out to be just as much of a genius as his buddy Michael. Michael used his genius for absolutely philanthropic and noble research into saving humanity. Milo uses his genius to just fucking make cash and live large. He's very hedonistic. He lives in the swanky apartment. He gambles and he just somehow is involved in the criminal underworld. Yeah, the criminal underworld bit I did not get initially, but I knew he got rich somehow and I assumed it would be some yeah. shady way to color in his character a little more. Again, I'm helping the screenwriters quite a bit there. I just filled all that in. Yeah, you are doing the heavy lifting that they did not do. <laughs> Two of the worst screenwriters in Hollywood based on their credits, to be perfectly honest. But then we see Michael getting prepped for the surgery or procedure, I guess, not technically a surgery. He gets like an epidural into his spine that is roughly the size of a fucking toilet plunger. This thing is massive and they don't numb his back at all. I cringed and they stuck the needle in. They use this as an excuse to take off his shirt and to show some more of the CGI skin and body work that they do. So as the old Michael Morbius, he has a very skinny, sickly body. It's super pale. You see all his ribs, you see all his veins, and it's a pretty good effect. There's definitely a Steve Rogers yeah. type of a transformation from weakling to super hunk that happens in this scene. And I actually liked the way the CGI looked for all that stuff. I actually think the CGI with him as skinny Morbius looked better than the Captain America CGI where he's skinny Steve Rogers. I thought mm-hmm. they did that pretty well. Trying to make a human body CGI is so hard because it it's not making a fantastical creature that we have no reference of. We know what like a skinny man looks like. So you really have to nail it. And I think they did a good job. I couldn't see anything that stuck out to me as was weak. Yeah. And it really sold this. It sold this thing. And then I ended up thinking, was either one of these Jared Leto's real body or is he somewhere in the middle? Like he's not as ripped as the after and he's not as skinny as the before. I could see him. He seems like a physical transformation guy. I know he got very skinny for the little things. So I could see him lifting weights and getting in decent shape for the post procedure shots because that's how he looks for the rest of the movie. So it's much easier to have that be your body and fake the skinny stuff. That's true. But this is fun. This girl, Martine, his colleague, fellow scientist, injects his back and immediately has a terrible effect. He turns into a hideous vampire, very angry. She locks him in the glass room. I think you and I both like this part too. This is where you first see what it, what the action looks like. When someone becomes a freaky vampire in this universe, they start making smoky, swirly trails and they move real fast and spooky. And I dug that effect. Yeah, the kind of twitchy movements and everything like that worked. It feels inhuman in an effective way. It it gets across what they wanted to get across. It's an effective scene. But there's some dialogue leading up to it. Okay, talk to me about that. Like, I know what you're doing here. What am I doing here? Mixing human DNA with bat DNA. And then it would be a cure at what cost? Like, how do you put that line in a movie in 2022? That line's been in every movie. I think every single movie ever made has that line in it. It's pretty straight up cheesy because no one would ever say that phrase in real life. At what cost, Michael? At what cost? But for me, I somehow managed to glide over that line. With some swishies behind you? Swishies behind me. Michael's greasy hair let me slide right over that. And so my rebuttal for this scene is I actually was charmed by a couple of the lines just after that in this scene. He makes the medical case to Martine. He says, a fusion of different species is a legacy we already carry in our bodies. And he makes this halfway science-y sounding case for what he's doing. And I'm like, that was still a cheap action movie swipe at real science talk, but it was enough for me. As skeptical as I am sometimes of movies... 
and want them to be very solid in their logic. I'm also easily sold. And somehow I just bought what he was selling. Also, he had this one other line that I really liked when he tells her, this disease could have killed me years ago. He's like, why am I still alive if not to fix this? And I actually felt like that was just also pretty obvious thing to say, but Leto sold it for me. And I'm like, wait a minute, am I a Jared Leto fan to actually think he's a fine actor. I don't know. He worked on me. I don't think most people would argue that he's a bad actor. His performances too often are colored for me by my knowledge of how much of a fucking pain in the ass he is. Yeah. But going all the way back to Fight Club, he had a small role in that a lot of people latched onto and be like, oh, this is a good actor. And of course, you got to go back to My So-Called Life, where he was quite the hunk as Jordan Catalan, right? That was him. Am I crazy? I never watched that. I just got reminded that he was the star of, what's the Ellen Burstyn movie? Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream, which pretty serious role. And then he won an Oscar, I think, for Dallas Buyers Club. So he's capable of putting in good performances, but he's just such an asshole. And I find myself never giving him the benefit of the doubt about anything. That's fair. Because I hate him so much. And I also found his weird baritone in this movie very distracting. Like, I know you're doing a voice right now. And like, I could see you thinking about the voice you're going to do before you say the words, if that makes sense. Like, I can (laughs) tell it's a choice and not how you actually talk. That's a fair condemnation. But I think that's saying that his acting failed because like that shouldn't be Visible. A good actor right. would not let you see that. It's fully possible that he wasn't bringing his A game for the Morbius movie. It's interesting to try to armchair psychoanalyze him because you wonder what game he is bringing. I felt like he did bring a good game to some of those lines. Like you said, if anyone slips at all, or even if you're just not feeling charitable, those lines, like the ones you hated in that scene, could just grate on you so hard. And for me, I was just on board enough for them to work. And I could see where he put just enough in him to sell them to me in places. And I kept me afloat. We can't leave the boat without talking about my favorite part. Speaking of afloat. Of the boat is that the, f- the fact that it's crewed apparently by a bunch of contract murderers. Yeah. What is this boat about? Where do they rent it from? <laughs> Super SWAT commander team. Yeah. And the only people aboard this boat sailing. This is not like a yacht, folks. If you haven't seen this, it is a full- It's a cargo ship. Cargo container yeah. ship or a tanker or something. It's a huge ass ship. And the only crew is this group of six or eight guys who are sitting around up on the At deck. First they just seem like ruffians or whatever, like sailors. Yeah, they're you playing don't really get cards. The sense that, sorry, I keep cutting you off. So excited to talk. But then you look closer <laughs> and they're all strapped up, man. They've got radios, earpieces in their ears, submachine guns on straps around their necks at all times with flashlights, laser sights. They are ready to- Scopes. Scopes. <laughs> what are they doing on the ship? What else do people rent this ship for that the crew comes equipped to kill the fuck out of you the moment you step out of line? Not even if you step out of line. So the captain goes, he's like, I'm going to go check on the dock. And he walks downstairs, big swagger in his step, and he goes into the makeshift operating room they've set up. And he's immediately got his hand on his gun. He's taunting Martine. He's like, where's Morbius? He's already got his gun out. And I'm like, why are you assuming you need your gun in this situation? How much did they tell you about? My only thought is that they cut a scene where Michael goes to a group of ex-Navy SEALs or something. If something goes wrong, I need you to kill me. Oh, that's the only way I could explain it away. That would make a lot more sense. But then why is he being such a dick to Martine? Exactly. He's, he's being like weird and predatory towards her the entire time. It is very weird. It doesn't make sense why they spring into action. Because if you just think about what you do know about it is he goes to his buddy. He's like, I need to go offshore and do something in secret. So if there was some shady underworld people running a ship where you could go do illicit stuff, their whole deal would be to try to not get in your business. Right. Like, all right, what happens on the ship stays on the ship. When you're below decks, you can do whatever fucking illegal shit you want because that's why we rent out this ship. But 
but no, these guys are all up in your face. Like, what are you doing on my ship? Is your buddy Michael getting out of line? Because I probably need to shoot him. And then he tries and he pays for it. And if Milo hooked Michael up with these guys, because we've established he has ties to the underworld, he probably would have been like, if anything happens to my friend, you're going to be in deep shit because this is my only friend in the world. That's true. So I can't think of a scenario where this situation makes any sense to me. No, it is kind of an action movie plot hole that I just had to paper over and move on. Uh, So then he discovers that he needs to drink blood now because he kills the captain, drinks his blood, feels strong again. Because if he doesn't drink blood, what happens? He gets real cranky and he gets real ugly. Yeah, he looks like a little bat person. Man bat, not Batman. A bit like man bat. So he kills everyone on the ship. Martine is knocked out. Calls in the Mayday and then disappears. And then back to New York. He jumps off and swims back to Long Island, right? The last shot of the ship is is, is him diving off the deck into the water. He scoops up the last doses of the serum, which is, I don't know, like conceptually, that's a fun scene. You turn into a vampire, you accidentally kill the group of overly aggro mercenaries who had it coming. And then you're like, oh shit, I'm actually a good guy. Let me radio in for help so that Martine gets rescued. All that was fine. She gets picked up and next time we see her, she's in the hospital. But that brings Tyrese around and Al Madrigal, you got to know who you're fucking with. Tyrese playing, like Tyrese, a guy who's mostly known for comedic roles. I think it's not unfair to say. I mean, he was in Baby Boy. That was more of a serious role. That was his breakout. But after that, I'd say he's he's mostly known for comedies. What is he in Fast and Furious movies? He's comedy relief. Comedic, okay. He's comedic relief. Okay. I show my, so, my furious ignorance. I didn't really know what kind of character he played. He's like the punching bag of the group. Everyone makes fun of him. He's like an easy mark for a prank or whatever. I see. <laughs> Apparently Tyrese in real life is an easy mark for a prank. I have to bring up this little tidbit that I love. I'm going to sidetrack us for a second. There was a Twitter post that made the claim that Martin Scorsese, who as we all know, has a bit of a rivalry with superhero movies. He doesn't consider them cinema or art. Right. Not the biggest fan. Although his comments have been taken out of context a little bit. They're not that negative. He's just saying it's not for him. Anyway, there was a post that was like, Martin Scorsese saw Morbius. He went crazy for it. He changed his mind about superhero movies not being cinema. (laughs) And Tyrese shared the quote on Instagram with this whole thing about how he was awestruck that Martin Martin felt that way about the movie. He was so proud and honored that he would say that. And then <laughs> yeah. I imagine he had quite a sad moment when people were like, it was a joke. It was made up. And he deleted his post about it. That does scream gullible to believe <laughs> that just in general, even if you didn't understand the background of Martin Scorsese commenting on superhero movies, just to be like, wait, this was a pretty cheesy action movie I was just in. Why would anyone <laughs> right. say this is like an achievement of cinema? Right. But Tyrese, bless his heart, man. He believes in himself and the movies he's in, and I respect that. But yeah, he's the straight man because they hired a a comic, Al Madrigal, to play the funny guy in this detective duo of FBI guys. Good comedian. I've been a fan of Al Madrigal's uh, stand-up for a while. He's funny. Good comedian. And he's doing a little bit of comic relief in this, but he's also like a competent detective. So it's a bit of a two-hander for him. He's not just a straight-up joke machine. That's true. He's actually the guy who solves the case. So Tyrese just stands there and looks stoic. (laughs) Just cowering. Al Madrigal both (laughs) makes the jokes and solves the case and goes, you guys, who drains bodies of blood? We got a vampire on our hands. I I like that about the movie, that there's none of that part where the detectives are clueless. The minute he gets on the ship, he's like, oh shit, we're dealing with a vampire. We got to all, what do you call it? What am I looking for? All hands be on the lookout. I forgot my police terminology. All cars? Calling all cars. cars, Be on the lookout for a vampire named Michael Morbius. (laughs) I mean, this is the Spider-Man universe, so they've dealt with all his villains and they've dealt with, oh wait, no, no, this is not the Spider-Man universe. Not yet. It's the Venom universe. But so it's the Venom universe. So they've still dealt with supernatural stuff. In San Francisco, but not out here on the East Coast. 
True. Yeah. I guess either way, they come to that conclusion pretty quickly and uh, (laughs) we'll just move on, which I like. So they're on his case. I have another theory about the Tyrese character, but that happens in the next section. He's got a little mustache too. He's got a little mustache, doesn't he? Does he? A little pencil mustache? Yeah, I think he does. I'm going to try to find a picture. I'll put it in the show He's just there to look handsome and hunky. He's the hunky. He's a handsome man. Yeah. Yeah. He was a model before he became an actor. So, and then we get some scenes of Michael and Milo as adults hanging out and you bought into their relationship here, but I really didn't. I found it. They talked to each other like maybe they're on like a second date and they know a little bit about each other, but they're still trying to learn. They're feeling each other out, asking like, oh, how's that thing going that you mentioned last time I saw you? Oh, it's okay. Like, it doesn't feel like old <laughs> yeah. friends bantering. It's a little it's a little stilted. I know what you mean that it's stilted. For me, I sold myself maybe. So maybe if I stop giving the movie credit and give myself credit for filling in the blanks, I sold myself that these are both weirdos, especially Michael. Milo's a little more like a man of the people or at least knows how to yeah. let loose and have fun. Michael's just a tightly wound weirdo and he's always awkward. He's always making little jokes that are only funny to him. But the scene that won me over, he goes, Milo, let's go for a walk. I need to talk to you. And this is actually the scene where he pitches, I need this ship to do my secret experiment because I might have a Yeah, cure. we're doing this a little out of sequence. Yeah, we're backwards. So this is where he sells that to Milo. And he goes, let's go for a walk. And they're in New York City, ostensibly. And both of them can just- London. Is it London? Is it real in reality yeah, London? Yeah, it's London. Everything was filmed in London. Okay. Well, it's this interesting long lens where they have this tight shot of the guys walking through this incredibly dense crowd on the streets of wherever they actually are that actually doesn't look like extras. It looks like a real street that didn't know that Matt Smith and Jared Leto was walking among them because there's a couple people that are actually like dancing around, wondering what's going on. I don't know. I guess you could take it at people gawking at a disabled pair of buddies. Yeah, two men who look very gaunt and are hobbling along the street as they describe it. But it's quite a, it's a good image to me. I thought that was actually decent filmmaking to just have these men, these friends have this conversation as they slowly make their way through this dense crowd. And yeah, the dialogue wasn't great, but somehow that sold me on like these two are these different people and they have each other and that means something to them. I don't dislike Daniel Espinoza as a director. I I quite liked life. That's a hard sentence. I quite liked life. The movie, to be clear. Yes. (laughs) He's got some cred. Uh He's working from one of the worst scripts I've ever written, probably. But yeah, I don't think he's bereft of talent. There are a few shots in this movie that are pretty impressive. So yeah, I take your point, especially for these type of shots are just so rare now because of COVID in the new movie to just see 300 people on the street. It's like, oh, I remember when that used to be a thing you could do. It also felt like a throwback to like New York movies. Like this was like a homage to- Remind me of Crocodile Dundee 2. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was going a little more serious. I was about to say Midnight Cowboy, but Crocodile Dundee 2 also- also a very good reference. You remember when he has to walk across everyone's heads on the subway? Does he do that? I don't think I got past Crocodile Dandy 1, to be fair. He could have walked on their shoulders. I think he stepped on a bunch of people's heads. I mean, he sucks. <laughs> anyway, so then they meet up again after the procedure is quote unquote successful. <laughs> Michael's kind of a dick to Milo because Milo's like, give me some of that. I want that. You yeah. look great. And Michael, to be fair to Michael, he's been suffering. He's been locking himself in a little glass cube and trying to figure out how long he can go before he gets his unquenchable thirst for blood. And it's fucking with him. And he's turning ugly as sin every four hours or whatever the time cycle is. So like, I get it. There is some funny irony because also they're doing CGI, not only to make him ugly when he turns vampire, but to make him perfect. Like his skin is like live retouched in real time. It's perfectly (laughs) tanned and smooth and his eyes are twinkling and he just looks so gorgeous as he's... He's telling Milo, you don't want this. It's a curse. It's terrible. Right. And Milo's like, fuck yeah, you, they, Michael. They filmed him through a fucking Instagram filter. It looks great. Watch it. If you get to watch it on a big screen, just to see Jared Leto's perfect, smooth skin. But you can certainly understand where Milo's coming from, though. Yeah. 
He's yeah, pissed. Like, the movie does a good job of showing you his point of view, why he would be bitter and angry at Michael for not sharing this, what he envisions as a gift. Because these guys are in the, I think Matt Smith's 40, Jared Leto's almost 50. Uh-huh. So they've been living for at least 40 years in this movie with this disease. You want a break, man. I get it. Like. Yeah. It's hard. I get it. Milo doesn't deal with it well, as we'll come to find out. Should I talk about the uh, the middle section? Yeah, let's jump in to see what happens next. There's not too much in this section, honestly. It's pretty spare. Yeah. There's a lot of setup and a lot of climax. All right, so back at the hospital, a nurse is killed, drained of her blood, and the FBI arrests Morbius because they've already figured out he's a vampire due to the excellent detective skills of Al Madrigal. Then Milo helps break Morbius out of jail, revealing that he took the serum too, and he's the one who killed the nurse. The two friends have a big fight over what it means to be a responsible vampire. As Milo embraces his vampire dark side, Morbius sets up an underground lab. He's determined to try to cure his new condition or to find a way to kill himself and Milo if he can't. You know, the movie picks up pace here, and that's another thing I give it credit for, is that it moves pretty fast. He's in jail. He's out of jail. And we're wondering for a minute who killed the nurse. Is Morbius out of control? But then that reveal comes pretty fast, too. So I actually like the fact that the pace seems to pick up and things happen pretty fast. Another thing in the plus column of this movie, it's barely 90 minutes without all the credits and post-credit scenes. Mm. So, yeah, it does not linger too long. And yeah, it's, it's a small movie. The stakes aren't world-ending, which was like a nice change of pace in a way. Yes. From all the movies that have come out. Certainly Marvel movies, everything is always the gravest of circumstances if we don't stop whatever's happening now. Humanity will be wiped out. But in this, it's not like probably like a dozen people will die if we don't figure this out. And it's like, well, that's bad. You don't want a dozen people to die. Yeah, but it's very personal. But it's also not the end of the world. Yeah, it's a very personal fight, which is a nice change for these type of movies. Unlike other vampire mythologies, this isn't even one of those where like it's going to spread and it's going to infect a lot of people. It's it's really just personal. It's Morbius and his girlfriend and his best friend. And there's just a problem that they have with each other and they have to work it out and they do it in a very action packed (laughs) way. The movie flirts with being a love triangle a little bit too towards the end, but never quite embraces it, which I appreciated. It keeps all the love aspects of the movie on the margins and never really says what Michael and Martine's relationship in the past has been. It lets us infer a little bit. Yeah, they have a kiss, but it's kind of a surprise because up until that point, they had kept it pretty professional. At the end? There's a much more bitey kiss at the end, but there's a culmination of the love story in the middle. Although if you missed it, I don't blame you because it went by fast. So this hallway chase scene with the poor nurse that gets killed, pretty good filmmaking in this scene, I thought. Bizarre lighting choice for this hospital, but it still works as like a cool, scary visual effect. This is a state-of-the-art research hospital, high-rise Manhattan facility. And apparently they're really keen on saving energy because at night the lights go off in the hallway and it's pitch fucking black except for the 10-foot section that you're walking through. And as you walk out of it, it goes black and the next part lights up. But it makes for some pretty spooky walking around when you're alone at night as a nurse and there's a vampire on the loose. It's a very striking image, but it's also clearly a hallway that was designed to be scary in a movie. Yeah. Like, you can see everything with the set design and the cinematographer. This is not a practical hospital yeah. hallway. It's just meant to be scary. You could never get insurance on that place if you're a real hospital. Way too hazardous for your employees walking around at night. Yeah. What if you're like wheeling a gurney with a patient on it down the hallway at night? <laughs> the lights are flashing <laughs> yeah, on and going off going black like crazy. for a second. Yeah. <laughs> when you're at a full sprint down the hallway and you accidentally take out some poor kid who's just going for a walk. <laughs> Why is it dark? Couldn't see him. Yeah. But then, like you said, the cinematography is cool. They do a very wide, long shot all the way down the hall. Someone kills the nurse and it's a good fake out because you're like, was that Michael? Was that a different vampire? What's going on? And they keep you in the dark for, in the dark, so to speak, for a little while longer. It's kind of fun. Okay. So pretty much the next day after the body is found, Michael 
gets arrested by, it's the next morning. He realizes that he's got to get out of there. Shit has gone south. And he almost makes it out of the hospital. But Tyrese and Al show up in the lobby and all hell breaks loose. There's one scene where Tyrese says to him, your artificial blood saved my arm in Afghanistan. But he does not say the word arm. Did you notice this? I didn't. I noticed something was a little off about that scene. There's a kind of a quick cut, but I didn't get. So he said ass or what do you think was said there? I think he said life. He said a one syllable word that was not arm. Okay. And I don't think it even started with like an A sound. <laughs> okay. It's very mismatched, the ADR versus what he actually says with his mouth in the scene. That's like a big pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, you notice those things. You can't just change the words he said. You've, you've brought up other cases that you are sensitive to lips not matching. There's another one. There's another one at the end of this movie. Oh, really? Uh, Jared Harris. Yeah. He does it again at the end of the movie. And then there's the worst one of all in the post credits, which we'll get to. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> but this, so this raises some interesting questions. So this this character's name is Simon Stroud. It's something from the comics. I didn't know about that until it came up when I was doing research. Right. But there's something weird about this Tyrese character. Apparently the arm may be a reference to the comic book character actually has a cybernetic arm related to oh. uh, losing it in combat. But I had a weird moment. So Michael leads them on this chase. He tries to get away from them to get out of the building and he ends up vaulting all the way back up this stairwell to the roof. And moments after he gets up to the roof, like he uses his vampire powers to basically fly the 28 story to the top of this building. He gets on the roof. He's looking for how does he get off the roof? And all of a sudden there's this gust of wind and Simon Stroud is standing behind him. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did they just reveal that this FBI agent has also some mystical powers? Is he like a magical vampire hunter himself? Do you know, did that mean anything to you? The way I read that scene was like, now that he's up on the roof, it's windier up there and we're able to see the wind because okay. he can like ride the wind. Right. God, that's... this sounds so fucking stupid. <laughs> he can just ride the wind, you know, man. <laughs> so that's my favorite. Metallica album, right? <laughs> I mean, knowing that he is a comic character, I feel like you're not way outside the realm of possibility, but I did not get that impression at all from that scene. Okay. Yeah. I, that was a misdirect for me. I'm like, oh, wait, did they just reveal that? That's why the Tyrese character is strong, silent, and, and moody is that he's actually like a Van Helsing with some supernatural powers himself. But maybe that I just made that up in my mind. Like I made up most of the good parts of this movie. That would have been a good wrinkle. Yeah. The movie you've written is great, Ian, <laughs> but it's not the movie we watched. So <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't get to see what I watched because it's pretty damn good in my head. Also, is the only evidence they have against him that they found origami at the scene? Because that's circumstantial as hell. Because he worked there. Like, yeah, all his stuff is at the scene of the crime. His office was four doors down yeah. the hall. So like, it's I'm guessing Milo left the origami on the nurse or something to Oh, to set up his friends? He's already that evil? Man, Milo's fucked up. But if you know that I collect like Funko Pops and somebody who works in the same building as me is killed and there's a Funko Pop next to her, you can't just go arrest me. You can. Like, that's not how it works. If you are the great detective <laughs> Al Madrigal who already knows you're a fucking vampire, this lady had no blood you in can, her body. I'm sure like he'd be taken in for questioning or whatever, but he's just locked up in a cell. You know? Once he fought back, the police don't like when you try to run away or fight back. They fucking lock you in. A, and not just a jail cell. He's not in the city jail. He's in some kind of supermax armored high-rise prison. They've seen his powers firsthand now. True. They know he needs like the Magneto jail or whatever. And it's not enough to hold him because Milo comes in pretending he's his lawyer and he drops off a bag of blood. And as much as Michael didn't want to drink it, he uses it to get the fuck out of there. Just fucked up because Milo could have just let him out, but he wants him to embrace being an evil vampire. Yeah. This is his only motivation in this movie. He wants his friend to... It's like when your friend gets married, you're like, man, he doesn't hang out with me anymore. I want to go eat some people with my friend. He never hangs out with me now. But that's basically his entire arc. He's the guy who's mad his friend won't hang out with him now. Yeah. It's like, you're not embracing the evil, dude. Come on. We're evil now. You got to have fun with it and kill some people. He did say he based his character on Kiefer Sutherland from The Lost Boys. Interesting. Which I can see. Yeah. And then he gets out of jail. 
detail. This is where he does his, as you call it, his verbal Kent reveal, where he's like hobbling around, but then all of a sudden he's walking normal. Yeah. He reveals he's taking the serum. And he just, he's full blown evil now. He's just a bad guy all of a sudden. Yeah. And not even like a, I got to do this for myself, bad guy, like you're saying. He's immediately just on Morbius's case. Like, dude, you're not evil enough. Let me be evil. Come be evil with me. It's intense. But you know what? I also glossed over that maybe because Matt Smith is also good in this movie. And I'm like, I just. He's I'm, a good actor. He revels in his evil. He kills a bunch of cops and then he does a dance. It's spooky and sick and he's fun. So again, I let myself ride the Morbin wave. As Morbius learns to do in this very section, he starts noticing that, as you said, the wind can pick him up and take him places. I hate to indulge superhero movies with their like 19 movie plans or whatever, but I think the better direction to take the Milo character in would have been drop these hints that he's breaking bad throughout the movie. He takes the serum, he drops the bag of blood off for Michael, just like it happens here, but he doesn't go full-blown villain. Maybe the mercenaries Michael killed on the ship have a boss, and now the boss is after them, and he's got more firepower or whatever, and that's the big bad of this movie, but drop hints that Milo is gonna go past the point of no return and do something unforgivable. He killed the nurse already, but then he apologizes for that by saying, like, your first time, you don't have any control over what you do, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, because Michael killed the captain I think, so like he's just as guilty but the captain deserved it the nurse didn't as is the main difference the right. movie won't even let us indulge michael of being like a true anti-hero because he never mm-hmm. actually does anything bad right the only people he kills are evil but yeah i think that would have been just a more believable arc for that character it just happens too fast i think that, that would have been an interesting evolution that there's a middle villain and these two guys are the bigger story brewing in the background but like we said it's a very personal movie and it's very small like the middle set piece fight and the end set piece fight it's the same two guys and they have the same powers in both fights there's literally like no escalation almost no escalation except for their level of intensity personally and their emotions but yeah like it would have been interesting to have a middle big fight against some i don't know it could have even been a semi-hero in spider-man land there's some buffed up uh, organized crime guys as we know give us some version yeah, of that kingpin. that would have been cool i'm sure morbius and kingpin have run into each other in the comics before it makes sense seems like they would all right and what did you think of the vampire fight it's more of like morbius morbius doesn't really engage in the fight as much he's more just trying to stall so he can get away he's trying to run away he's out of way yeah i like that scene it's again it's another the wind is coming and he's learning to use his echolocation power and as milo's coming at him for this confrontation i don't know what's milo gonna do kill him he's coming at him and a subway train comes up behind and he realizes that he can maybe catch a ride on this wave of wind that's coming in front of the train and he jumps in front of it and he starts <laughs> parasailing or what would you call that squirrel suit flying in front of yeah the he's like squirrel train. suiting and it's cool i don't know it looks cool everyone leaves trails as they fly when they're a vampire or even when they just jump around the subway scene is fine and i liked the dynamic between them in the first fight of milo being the aggressor and michael more or less just trying to get away uh-huh. it felt true to the characters it didn't go on too long because my brain goes numb when these fucking fights these cgi fights go on for more than four or five minutes yeah, it gives you a few juicy moments that it freezes in slow-mo that I thought also was a cool effect. And then it, he's out of there. And then Beast just finds a counterfeiting lab in a basement, which is, I'm sure there are large-scale counterfeiting operations in the world. These two dipshits in the store that he follows back to their hideout do not seem like the type to be running what appears to be like a million dollar a month enterprise. With fancy equipment. In this cavernous basement lab that they've got set up that... 
in New York or London, whichever you choose to believe is where the movie takes place, would be probably like $70,000 a month. And you're right. The casting is poor. The writing and the casting work against the concept because it's like these sort of young, punky dudes. It's like, how are they doing what that looks like they're doing there? The tone is not right. It doesn't match what's going on in that operation. Right. They're basically trying to buy some cheap shit with a $100 bill to get the change because the change is real money. And then you're in the clear once you just don't go back to that store again. It's a scheme as old as time, but that is not how people with an operation of this size would be like, they might give some money to those kids and ask them to bring back a portion of what they get back from breaking the bills, but they're not getting let into this high tech, very serious lab. And it's only like met with an underling on the street. Right. It's only interesting to Michael because they have a bunch of high tech printing gear, which he obviously intuits that would be perfect to convert very conveniently into some centrifuges and stuff he needs to make more serums. We can't gloss over the fact that he's basically fucking Inspector Gadget. In addition to being a vampire with super strength and he could float on the wind and all that shit, he's, as a kid, in almost... Not even an almost, a very superhuman level of like technical aptitude. Well, yeah, he MacGyvers the transfusion machine, and now he turns these crazy computerizing jet printers into a serum factory. Which I don't know enough about centrifuge <laughs> or printers to know if that's possible, but I suspect it's not. And the way they show it tells you that it's not. Is, oh, what if I take out this part of this printer, and then I just turn it upside down, and I stick something on top of it? Now it's a state-of-the-art biotech machine, gene splicing gear. What they could have done is be like, what if I take this part? of the printer, throw it in the garbage, then take the whole printer and throw it in the garbage and just buy some centrifuges because I'm a fucking Nobel Prize winning biologist. Maybe use the suitcases of cash that he just took from these guys. Although he tells them because he's so fucking noble, he says, just please leave and take your money with you because I don't want it. He's supposed to be an anti-hero or an in- like he's a villain when he pops up in the comics the first yeah. time. He's so neutered in this movie. He is. This movie is neutered in the very Hollywood way that, like you said, it's very clear. Everyone who gets killed has some justification or everyone who's even taken advantage of is justified. Like Milo, the purely evil one, even then they take time to give him this encounter with his bro at a bar who's rude to him in a way that we're supposed to feel sympathetic to why he kills him afterwards. But that's a stretch, maybe. It is a stretch, but there's a very Spider-Man 3 scene of Milo getting ready for his night out where he's dancing in the mirror like you mentioned oh yeah and matt smith got fucking jacked for this movie i was shocked yeah if those are his real pecs he looks fucking yoked i was like <laughs> i had my suspicions when he was wearing all these fucking baggy sweaters the entire movie i was like they're hiding some muscles under there but yeah he gets into an argument like these guys they're pushy bar bros which who hasn't dealt with a pushy bar bro in their life milo's also openly flirting with one of their girlfriends in front of them yeah. so it's not like he's blameless it doesn't mean anyone should start engaging in physical violence but it's a pointless scene i don't know we can't, we get that Milo's embracing his new life and all the powers that come with it already. I think we've established that. Yeah, the whole, it's just for the plot. It's just so that he gets caught on the parking lot camera and Al Madrigal can see that, wait a minute, there's two vampires. There's a copycat. Got a double vampire situation here. Al Madrigal's dealt with this before, though. Don't worry. He's, he's on top. He's, he might he's be cool. the Van Helsing character. He is. He's so cool, man. He just always has the answers. I think he might have been a vampire hunter before joining the force. Much like you theorized Tyrese was. I think you had the right theory with the wrong cop. Yeah. 
I think it's Al. Yeah, I'm not looking up his character's name. (laughs) We should definitely not. No one should ever learn that. But yet they should make a sequel. I was about to propose that they make the Al Madrigal FBI vampire hunter movie. I could see that being a Disney Plus show if they ever get fully (laughs) absorbed into the MCU. I would watch it. All right. You ready to walk us through the end of the movie? Here we go. Milo has become more evil. So when his lifelong doctor, Nicholas, played by Jared Harris, confronts him, Milo attacks him. Then Milo captures Martine and he mortally wounds her too. But she gets a little taste of Morbius's blood before she dies. Killing Martine was the last straw, though, and Morbius is pissed. He attacks Milo in an epic final battle. Milo is strong, but Morbius has one advantage. Bats like him. So by calling up the help of a massive swarm, Morbius overpowers Milo and administers his fatal serum. And that's the end. He just kills his friend, and that ends the thread of the movie. He didn't save New York from total destruction or the world from splitting into pieces. He just killed his buddy, and it's like, okay, that wraps it up. That is my favorite part of the movie, is that there's no <laughs> fucking sky beam, no portal opening to another dimension. Yeah. It's just two bros having a falling out. But it's... Why bats like Morbius, but not Milo? Because they both have bat blood. Yeah. And I thought maybe that Morbius had taken on more of the bat nature because he definitely exhibits. He spends a lot of time working on his echolocation and his ability to probe out into Manhattan and find people at great distances. But then they do show Milo doing the same thing. His ears do that little wiggle jiggle wrinkle stuff. So he has every power except it's his affinity for bats. He just always dug bats, man. And bats dig him. Ian, why are you refusing (laughs) to admit that this movie is bad? And inconsistent in its logic. Look, bats dig Morbius, and whether you think that is a problem or a cool thing is up to you. I think it would have been awesome if he, like, unleashes all the bats, and then they just eat the shit out of them. And Milo, like, killed both of them. Not kill them, because they can't be killed by those means, or just eat them a bunch. Yeah, all the bats really do is push him around. Bullies. If you were to think of something that you needed to recruit to help you push a big, strong person around, the last thing you would think of was a bat, which weighs, like, half an ounce. It's, like, one of the lightest (laughs) mammals on Earth. Now, the serum that he stabs Milo with, we know it's deadly. Do you want to know how we know it's deadly? I'd like to see you defend this fucking line. Do they tell us or how do we know? Morbius literally says, to bats, it's lethal. To humans, it's deadly. Please explain the fucking difference to me. How did this line get in an $85 million movie? By accident. I don't know. I did not imagine this line, right? You also heard it with your ears. I thought it might have gone the other way. To bats, it's deadly. To humans, it's lethal. But that doesn't make it Oh, big fucking deal. It's the same. It gave me a good laugh, though, when I heard it. I had trouble transcribing it because I was laughing so hard. It's weird. And they don't, it's not a winking line. It's just like a serious explanation or just under his breath almost as he's filling serum. He's telling her. He doesn't say it to anyone. I don't think. Does he say it to Martine? Martine's not even in the room, is she? I don't oh, know. Is she there? I was so high both times I watched this movie. <laughs> well, good for you. Imagine how bad it would have been if you weren't high. I know. Also, I love that he has a Casio watch. He's got like a little stopwatch. Yeah, that's one of his quirks. That to me was actually didn't work on me as well. Like a character choice. Yeah, they try to sell these things that he's not only a genius and dark and brooding and incredibly compassionate, but he's a quirky nerd. He wears an old-fashioned Casio watch and he never ties his shoes. He wears these Doc Martens or whatever, and they go through great lengths to show his laces flopping around at all times. Just some weird character stuff. There was a line from the trailer that was very strange that they cut out where he goes, he's like, I am Venom. And he gets all scary looking for a second. He's beating up one of the counterfeiters when he says it, I'm pretty sure. And uh, in the trailer, he says that, but then he goes, just kidding. It's Dr. Michael Morbius at your service. And they completely cut the second part from the movie, which makes the Venom line really strange and out of place. I didn't know what he said. Did he literally say Venom like he was playing 
it being a different character from this universe? Yes, that was what he was. So they're clearly aware of Venom on the East Coast. Oh, shit. To make that joke. Okay, that was totally lost on me. I just thought he said, I am a bad dude. I couldn't understand him. Vengeance would have worked then too. Vengeance, you know, yes. I was thinking in that direction. So that was a gag. It was a gag. But then the line from the trailer makes sense, but it's also a terrible line. Yeah. And I'm glad they cut it. But you can't put the first part in without the second. Like they put the setup without the punchline. Yeah, that's They just right. left it. They were like, that's, okay. that's close enough. That's pretty silly. <laughs> I will admit. But I guess they expected what happened to me, which is like, people won't know what he said anyway. He's just being scary. That's pretty cheap. <laughs> we should expect more from our filmmakers. <laughs> we should. Generally, I do. But with this movie, I have so much goodwill. It's just an ending well of goodwill from my heart straight into the dark heart of Morbius. The other ADR thing that I hated from this section was when Jared Harris is mortally wounded and Michael comes to him and he goes, you have to stop him. That's not what he says either. I have no idea what he said, but the words don't match his lips moving. It's very distracting. People had a decent budget to make this movie. <laughs> I felt like that scene was weird. They show a bunch of stuff in shadow. Like maybe they CGI'd some shadow just because they're like, we don't like how the scene turned out. We're just going to quickly get us out. Yeah, because line or something. There's a lot of reshoots done at various times over years. So okay. it's not out of the realm of possibility that some of these guys weren't able to come back for stuff that they wanted to add. That feels like a victim of a later edit because I wasn't even sure he died. I read in someone else's synopsis that Jared Harris, that was his final words, but like he seemed to be hanging on when I last saw him. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't paying attention by that point. It's hard for me to believe that Morgus would just leave him there if he was still within saving. That's true. You he know? is a doctor, which he tells us <laughs> yeah, in his very first scene, I am a doctor. So as we mentioned, there's some great dialogue here where Martina's dying and she goes, make it mean something. And Morbius goes, I'm sorry. And then she kisses him, but she has an ulterior motive. She kisses him and bites his lip and then gets his blood on her lip and he gets all horny now for blood because he's <laughs> yeah. blood. And then he eats, he drinks all her blood to get super powerful for the Milo fight. But then come to find out drinking Morbius's blood might have some side effects too. Yeah, that was Why really- can he bleed though? I thought he couldn't bleed. He doesn't bleed throughout this entire movie when he's getting the shit kicked out of him by Milo. But biting his lip makes him bleed? Was it because he was in a weakened state? He's vulnerable to her. Explain this, Ian. You wrote the script. You have all the answers. <laughs> the power of love made him bleed, my friend. That's how she had, oh. That's how she was able to bite his lip. Yeah, I didn't even figure out. You had a much better description of what actually happened in that scene than I came away with. I caught that she got some blood in her mouth. Then he rages out and his teeth come out. They saw the longest version of his fangs you see in this whole movie is right there when he freaks out. And I'm like, oh, did he just dive into her neck with those fangs? Her head's going to come right off. It's true. But she's not dead. One of the very last frames of the film is her eyes opening up and they're glowing red. And what happened? Yeah, I guess that was set up for a sequel that never will come to pass, probably. And then there's the big final fight. I don't have much to say about it. It's a big fight between two superpowered dudes. We already mentioned that Morbius calls the bats which right. kind of hold Milo down and then he stabs him. It was a fine fight. It didn't go on too long. That's all I asked for of these things. Yeah, that's a good thing to say about it. It had a lot of the commonalities of Manhattan superhero fights, punching each other into and through buildings up and down below ground. I think the best part that you and I both liked is that as Morbius grows into his final form and embraces his vampire self, he gets purple power. And now when he jumps and flies around, he's trailing these streaks of this beautiful purple that just makes him fun. I used to make a drink that was grape Kool-Aid and Everclear and we called it purple power. <laughs> really? So I used to get purple power too, but I was not flying through the streets. I was asleep in an alleyway. Yeah, the purple power is cool. It's fine. And I guess now that I'm really examining this from a holistic viewpoint, the movie loses me in the script and the editing because the directing's not bad. Uh -huh. Like we were calling out some really bad lines. 
But we're also calling out some really strange editing where you get half a line and they cut the second part off. And yeah, that's true. The multiple time jumps and stuff. I don't know if I put this failure on Espinosa's head altogether. Yeah, it's definitely a movie that could have been 25, 30% better with some just more coherent editing and a few of the worst lines cleaned up. And a few explanations offered for some confusing stuff that happens in the story. It's not just the dialogue's bad. Right. It's that, like with the SWAT team on the boat, we don't know where those guys came from and why they are this way. We couldn't figure out why he was floating away from Tyrese like that. We shouldn't have these questions. Right. Maybe it would have been a winner for you. Like maybe it would have passed your test. You just patched a few of those holes, which I patched with my deep well of love. Uh-huh. Now you might think we're done, but nope. we're not because this movie has not one, but two post-credit scenes. The first post-credit scene, I don't have much to say about. It's fine. It shows the vulture from Spider-Man Homecoming, a character I deeply enjoyed in that movie. Adrian Toomes arriving in this universe and he's locked up, but then they're like, we don't know who you are, so we have no charge. We got to let you out. Yeah, he Appears in an empty jail cell, and they're like, uh, you're free to go, sir. It's just like a really short little... Please note, all he has is the clothes he's wearing. But then he shows up 10 minutes later in, in the vulture suit from Spider-Man Homecoming. Where you get the fucking suit from? Question. <laughs> now, we're going to do a little... This is the first time I think we're doing a scene here. We're going to read some lines. Which part would you like me to take? I'll take the vulture part. You don't have much to say then. Because okay. I, I didn't prepare you for this adequately. Okay. You take the Morbius lines. He's only got three words. So, set the scene. Morbius drives to a field and is standing there. And then Vulture shows up. And they have a conversation that goes a little something like this. Thanks for meeting me, Doc. Been reading about you. I'm listening. Not sure how I got here. Has to do with Spider-Man, I think. I'm still figuring this place out, but I think a bunch of guys like us should team up. Could do some good. Intriguing. Do you like my baritone that I adopted? It was, it was good, yeah. <laughs> I liked your Michael Keaton. But I, I tried to do my best impression of whatever fucking poor voice actor they hired to do a Michael Keaton impersonation. Because that is not Michael Keaton in this scene. We're in agreement about this. It's layers, yeah. So Michael Keaton's <laughs> face appears in this first scene, and it's definitely him. Then in the second scene, he's wearing a mask, whatever the vulture's sort of helmet thing is. And so there's a sound of him talking through a helmet, and there's the idea that maybe he's acting the part of the vulture where he speaks in a more overtly, what would you call that, declaratory style. But it doesn't sound like Michael Keaton. It's wavering between half Michael Keaton and somebody else entirely. It's definitely somebody who knows how Michael Keaton speaks, but does not have his voice. He's got a very distinct voice, in my opinion, because he's got got almost like a little lisp to how he talks. It's a signature. This guy doesn't have it. It just sounds like a generic 50-year-old man. And this dialogue is so fucking bad. That is bad. I will not defend that. Why does he assume Spider-Man is involved? Why does he want to team up with Morbius? Morbius has no idea who Spider-Man is. That's okay. not from his universe. Okay. Why would Morbius humor? I, like, nothing. none of this makes sense. It is so obviously blatant shoehorning in to try to set up a fucking Sinister Six movie. Which, by the way, I don't think Morbius was ever in the Sinister Six. I think he might have been in, like, the Sinister 60, because they did, like, a bunch of things where there's, like, 100 Spider-Man villains teaming up to get him out. But the original six, like, Vulture was always in, but Morbius has nothing to do with them. I just like the line, I think a bunch of guys like us should team up. <laughs> like, what does that fucking mean? Bunch of guys like who? One of you has no powers. You just are in inventor and a very talented one because you invented a fucking vulture suit out of whatever metal you could find lying around because you got no money. Yeah. And the other one's a fucking vampire who's trying to cure his, like you guys have no common interests. <laughs> There's no you have no common goal. There is no reason you would be teaming up. This is such a bad scene. It's bad. It's so bad. <laughs> 
It's like it's bad, like you would do in a hurry. It's almost yeah. like they forgot to do the post credit scenes. And they're like, you guys, we've been pushing the release date on this movie for three years. You're telling me you didn't do a post credit scene? Quick, type me something up. I got to get the script into the recording studio tonight. Yeah, it literally feels like they, they wrote it as they just were like, hey, make something up. You guys should team up. Like, just go for it. It's embarrassingly bad. It's the worst post credit scene in a movie I've ever seen. And <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. It's my favorite part of the movie. Like, I might watch it again tonight. I don't know. Just that scene. It makes me get. It makes me giggle. It's weird. I didn't even register it the first time. I think I did keep the credits rolling long enough to see it. But it's so weird that it just, it didn't enter my brain. It's the most nakedly greedy I've seen a movie studio be. Just like, we really got to set up another movie with these guys. Shit something out. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of every fucking movie with a budget over $50 million having a post-credit scene. But I will admit they're usually done pretty well in Marvel and DC. There's something there that's intriguing, not just make one guy walk up to another guy and go, hi, let's team up. Like, what's the enjoyment in that scene? There's nothing. It's just, hey, let's make make a movie together. Okay. See you right. next year. I'm listening. All right. This movie just came out, so we don't have a lot of follow-up on the people involved to right. do, but I can give you a little bit about uh, some of the background info on the movie. So Antoine Fuqua and F. Gary Gray turned down the chance to direct the movie. Interesting. I'm listening. Intriguing. <laughs> I would have liked to see Antoine Fuqua's take on this. He's a director I mostly enjoy. Of course, he directed Training Day, one of my all-time favorite movies. Ah, uh, yeah. But he declined, and so did F. Gary Gray, and I can't say I blame them. So Espinoza, you might think this killed his career. It did not. He's had a bit of an interesting career. He had his big break in 2010 with a Swedish crime thriller called Easy Money that everyone seems to really enjoy. I'm going to try to find it and check it out because it's gotten good reviews. It's supposed to be a fun ride. And then he got hired to direct Assassin's Creed, which will be a future episode of the podcast, the Michael Fassbender video game adaptation. But he was replaced before production began by Justin Kurtzel. And he directed the Denzel Washington, Ryan Reynolds minor hit Safe House. Didn't get great reviews, but it made a little bit of money. And then in 2015, he directed a movie called Child 44, which is, it sounds like a dream, written by Richard Price, one of my favorite novelists, guy who wrote Clockers, Lush Life, great writer, starring Tom Hardy, Gary Oldman, and Numi Rapace. Huh. It had a $50 million budget, but it got terrible reviews and only made $13 million. I've never heard of this movie before. Seriously, under the radar for that cast and, and that what, budget. What? What happened? I think it might have been a British production, but still, there's a lot of crossover between British and American cinema, so it would not have been a stretch to see it get a theatrical release here. So you said this was uh, 2015, too? This wasn't like... They were all stars by then. Yeah, this wasn't early Tom Hardy and Gary Oldman. This was like prime time. Yeah, I don't know. And then he did Life, which you talked about a little bit, which everyone thought was a Venom prequel because it, it follows a lot of those beats of the symbiote from the Venom story. Uh, That's the Ryan Reynolds, Jake Gyllenhaal, Alien ripoff. It's pretty good, but it flopped, so we can cover it one day if we want. Okay. Oh, that's right. I think it was a footnote on the episode of the Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence life that we did with Niles, where I said we might end up covering two movies with the same title. Oh, two lives. And then he's got Madame Luna in pre-production. Okay. The Anarchist versus Isis and Red Platoon are movies he's directing that have been announced. I cannot imagine what the Anarchist versus Isis will be or why he's directing it, but it sounds interesting. Yeah. He's got a full slate. Yeah. He's, so this did not derail his career at all. Not yet. Um, I mentioned a little bit. Not yet. Yeah. He might have had those other coals in the fire before this movie was released. I mentioned the screenwriters, Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless. 
Interesting name. The Rotten Tomato scores of the films they've written are 25% for Dracula Untold, which I swear was a bomb and we were going to cover. And then I looked it up the other day and it made too much money. The Last Witch Hunter, which was a terrible, I think it was a Vin Diesel movie, 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Gods of Egypt, 15%. Alex Proyas's Fall from Grace will be a large topic of conversation when we finally cover Dark City. And Morbius, which is at 16%. Having a hard time getting out of the basement. Their best reviewed film, they had a story credit on the 2017 Power Rangers, which has like a 51%. Okay. They That's were cute. hired to write the reboot of Clue that we talked about in the Clue episode. Okay. Uh, but that never got off the ground. So I assume, thank God, we will not be getting their version of Clue. They don't seem like the Clue guys. Or the movie guys, maybe. And then the most recent news on this was that Leto had tweeted a 19 second video where he was caught reading a script titled Morbius 2, It's Morbin Time, written by himself under the pseudonym Bartholomew Cubbins. That's a good pseudonym, honestly. Is that a Dr. Seuss character? It Bartholomew fucking sounds like Bartholomew it. Cubbins. Following the catastrophe that was the Morbius re-release, a third petition was started on change.org to put the film back in theaters for a third time. And the petition just stated that everyone was busy that weekend, but we'll definitely go now. Pinky Swear. They might buy that. It's a reasonable explanation. But wait, I'm, let's go back to the Lido thing. That's obviously him having fun with the goofiness of the all meme. this. But did right. he shoot that before the re-release when he was further humiliated publicly? Or is that like him trying to get the last word? No, I'm pretty sure it was pre... Oh, it was the day of the re-release. Oh, okay. He tweeted that out on June 3rd, which was the day the movie went back in theaters. Oh, which makes it a little more thirsty, like trying to pump up yeah, the re-release. It did not work. <laughs> this movie had bad buzz. It had a star that had had been determined to be toxic by that point. It was pretty bad. It had the ever-changing release date, which didn't inspire a lot of confidence. The trailer was bad and played in front of every movie for two years. People are probably sick of it. Yeah. It's not a character that has a deep connection with moviegoers. It's not hard to theorize why this movie failed, right? No, I think that was a very tight final thought you just dumped out there. It sums it up. Did you have something else you wanted to add before we get into next week's episode? Let me just say this. After all the well-justified crapping you've done on this movie, I feel very hesitant to go to bat for it, as they say, but... I've oh, still, <laughs> I still, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I would watch a sequel. If something crazy happened in Hollywood and someone greenlit this, I would watch more of Leto as Morbius on screen. I just enjoyed it as escapism and I wouldn't turn that movie off. I'd watch a sequel. I do think that there are the bones of a good movie somewhere in here, but you got to get some new screenwriters in there. You got to yeah. get a new editor. There's no accounting for the COVID-19 pandemic. Nobody could have seen that coming, but the kind of staggered schedule of the reshoots probably didn't help things. That's why a lot of it feels out of place or weird. Yeah, I'd watch a sequel, but okay. I don't think we're getting one anytime soon. No, it doesn't seem like that could ever happen, but it's good to know that we're not so far apart in the world of movies. There is Craven the Hunter is coming in 2023, another classic Spider-Man villain that they're softening the edges of to make him an animal lover. Oh. I thought his whole thing was that he was like a big game hunter. That's not auspicious beginning. Aaron Taylor Johnson playing the role. He's an actor I like, and J.C. Chandor is uh, directing it, and he's a director I really enjoy. He made oh, yeah. Most Violent Year, which is a movie I, I quite like. Is he Marvel? Margin Call? He was Margin Call as well, yeah. Oh, okay. Well remembered. Good director. I'm curious to see what he does with it. And I like Aaron Taylor Johnson. I don't think I'll see that one in theaters probably, but I'll check it out when it's available on home. Interesting stuff. So next week, we were going to do Dark City, full disclosure. I felt like we were doing a few too many like dark sci-fi movies. So we're going to go with a stupid sci-fi movie. Downsizing from 2017. Do you remember this movie? I could maybe venture a guess about what this is, but no, I don't really know this movie. It had a Talking Heads heavy trailer with Once in a Lifetime. It's about Matt Damon shrinking himself down to save money with a smaller carbon footprint. I, I knew there was some connection of making the figurative literal, and I didn't know exactly what happens in the movie, but it makes sense. I have seen this movie already. I did not like it, okay. but I'm going into it 
with an open mind. So we will see. Yeah, me too. You know how my mind is scarily open these days, apparently. So we'll see. How we might need one. to close your mind a little bit, Ian. <laughs> yeah, it's time to <laughs> ratchet that door shut. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whichever other apps let you rate and review podcasts. We really appreciate it. Uh, talk us up to your friends. Word of mouth is a big booster for getting some new listeners in there. We would appreciate it. For sure. You can follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Suggestions, recommendations for movies to cover. We might do another mailbag episode in the near future. So Neat. get the questions in. That'd be a fun thing. And I uh, will see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.